We have been moving through uh, the scriptures to discover who God is, to discover our relationship with him, to discover how he has revealed himself. And um, we've moved um, rather rapidly, actually, in many ways, uh, through the text. We uh, Last week, we found ourselves in the historical text looking at the sin that defined Israel, the sin of idolatry, and how that led them to a point of separation from the promise where they found themselves in the exile. This week, I want to once again revisit the historical narratives and the prophetic text to to see how God uh, responded to Israel's failure, to see how God uh, has always responded to Israel's failure in uh, expressing himself as a God of promises, a promissory God, a God who um, is, is clearly uh, desirous of a relationship. We saw back when we started uh, at the fall that uh, even in that moment of blatant rebellion, God acted in grace. God reached out to Adam and to Eve to to provide for them what they could not provide for themselves. And we've seen over and over again as we've gone through the text up to this point, man's rebellion and, and God's resolve. God's resolve to see the relationship renewed. God's resolve to see his people um, rescued, to see his people transformed, to see his people become all that they're supposed to be. And at the heart of that resolve is a promise. And that promise in particular is he himself. He is the promise. Now, a lot of times when we talk about these promises, we use the word prediction. We talk about the prophetic predictions or prophecies or those sorts of things. We, we all have, if you have a study Bible at all, you have a table of predictions. You know, these are what were said in the Old Testament. This is what's carried out in the New Testament, that sort of thing. But I think sometimes we miss the emphasis of what the Bible actually has in mind when we use the word prediction instead of promise. And, and I want to just highlight a, a few reasons why I believe there are promises more than they are predictions. Okay, uh, Yes, they do tell us what's going to happen in the future, but they tell us so not just through the lens of God looking into the future saying this is going to happen, but they do so through the lens of promise. And the reason I want to highlight these are is number one, a prediction can become separated from the person who gave it and become a reality all to itself, but a promise carries a part of the person with it wherever it goes. You know, if you say, I believe something's going to happen out in the future, I mean, even just not even necessarily using a prophetic idea, if you say, I think we're going to see uh, an economic crash, sometime in the next in the future or if i think we're going to see you know these sorts of difficulties arise those sorts of things you might be right you may be wrong but that 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 statement kind of takes on a life of its own and exists or or doesn't exist based upon whether or not that actually comes to play but if you say to somebody i promise you i'm going to do this or i promise you i'm going to do that you got to walk beside that statement you got to stand beside that statement. You, you got to be connected to that statement. 
And when God makes his promises, the promise of himself uh, throughout the Old Testament, he is committing to walking alongside that promise. He's committing to connecting with Israel. He's committing to revealing himself and relating part of who he is. And the realities that uh, he's going to bring to pass. I think a second reason that promise is a better way to describe it than prediction is that a prediction's power is in the telling, a promise's power is in the event. Okay. The prediction, you know, you, you say what? When you look at your prediction, your, your tables of fulfilled prophecies, what are you actually doing? What, why, why do we have those lists in the first place? To acknowledge the veracity of the prophetic message, that the prophets really were supernaturally endowed to tell us what's going to happen in the future. It, it's, a, it's a form of apologia, of apologetics. It's a form of, of a defense of our faith. That Our faith is different because the prophets predicted and it came to pass. And so the power is there in that, in that prediction. But a promise, its power is really in the event itself. It's, it's in the, the, the playing out of what was promised, what was expressed. Okay, If you say to your child, I promise we're going to go to Six Flags, okay, that sort of thing. When does that promise really become powerful? When you actually get to Six Flags. Up until that point, it's, well, they told me we're going to do that. And there's anger if it doesn't happen. Okay, But it's what? It's in the happening that it matters, where, where, where the person bases their emphasis. Whereas even in our culture, we see such an emphasis on prediction. We see, you know, you go to the supermarket and you got the... the World Daily News or whatever those those magazines are with what? Predictions, 76 predictions for 2022, those sorts of things. And even if those people, what? Even if those people are wrong, you know, the next time they have predictions, what? They're going to be published again. Okay. It's more in the telling. Let me show you what I have the possibility of perhaps knowing the future. Whereas the promise is in the, is in the event. That's where the power is. It's that connection. And then third, a prediction stops being a prediction once it's fulfilled. But a promise keeps on giving even after fulfillment. Because we, we are connected to the person. We're connected to the event. We're connected to the playing out of that. And that continues to have implications for us, connections to us, and, and, and meaningfulness to us as people who are following God. And so we come back to the biblical text. And, and yes, I do, again, believe their predictions. I do believe they are accurate portrayals of what would trans transpire in the future. I believe we still have that hope in many texts of scriptures. But I prefer to see them through the lens of a promise that God is making. And as I said before, it's a promise of himself. And I want us to look this morning just real briefly. There's no way we could do this uh, in any kind of exhaustive manner. But I want us to look at this promise 
as it unfolds throughout Israel's history. It starts really before the nation even exists. Before there is an Israel, we find God saying some amazing things. Genesis 22, talking to to Abraham, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And then notice this, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abram returned to his young men. Now, when God moves that phrase, and your offspring shall possess the gate of whose enemies? Not their enemies, his enemies. God has now moved from just focusing upon Abram and his descendants to Abraham and his descendant, capital D, Jesus. He, he's, we see these, these images start to form and, and, and start to shape in terms of this one who's going to come. Later on in Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons, he comes to Judah. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah is going to be the, the, the line. Judah is going to be the, 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 the family through which the one who is owed the tribute, owed the attention, owed the focus until he comes. And indeed, when we go to the New Testament, we see what? We see both Mary and Joseph are descendants of Judah, from the tribe of Judah. We have the promise played out there. But even on the tongues of foreigners, people who are not Israelite, people who were in fact once intended to curse Israel, we see God bringing a message of the one, the, the promise of the one who will come. You look at Numbers 24, Balaam, a, a foreign prophet, a prophet who was hired to, to curse Israel, has his message transformed by God himself. And it says, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Even before Israel was formed, you had the expectation of the one who was going to come, the one who was going to, 
to bring victory, the one who is going to bring deliverance, the one who would be the embodiment of God. As we move into Israel's formation, we see uh, the messianic promise expressed uh, even more clearly in terms of a covenant between God and David and his household. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks to David. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, as he's repeating this, uh, this promise to the descendants of David, he says, As for you, you walk before me as your David your father walked, with the integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. You have the, the unconditional statement made to David, the conditional statement made to his descendants, both expressed exactly how they were supposed to be expressed to communicate that there, there, there is the room for judgment. There is the room for God stepping in and, and removing a king uh, from the line of David from the throne if they were sinful, if they were disobedient, if they were pursuing false gods, which he ultimately did with the exile. But you have what? You have the unconditional promise to David, which is meant to say, even if your descendants mess up, even if they fail to keep their end of the bargain, know that I will be faithful to my promise to you, David. Know that I will be faithful to, 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 in my resolve, in my commitment to, to my people to, to one day send one who will rule, one who will never give up the throne, one who will have absolute authority. But he continues on. In the midst of collapse, as Israel uh, goes through periods of destruction and difficulties, we read in Isaiah chapter 9 during, the, during the, the, the period that would see the fall of the northern kingdom. For unto us is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Then on into chapter 11. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be This isn't a regular king. This isn't an individual who is simply a descendant of David. Notice what it says there. From the shoot of the stump of Jesse. He's not just a descendant of David. He's a new David. He's the fulfillment of that promise. He's the fulfillment of that covenant. This plays out again in Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me 
one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Even as Israel is collapsing, even as Jerusalem falls, God continues to communicate his promise that he's with Israel. That one day there will be one who sits on the throne in power. There will be one who communicates clearly, perfectly, totally the relationship. But it doesn't even stop there. In the post-exilic world, as, as Israel's coming back from exile and they're beginning to be reborn as a nation, reformulated as a nation, he sends word through his prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. Bowl of a donkey. God's promise is Himself. God's promise is a Son who would come, who would rule, who would lead, who would transform. This is God's consistent message. In just the passages that I've read here, we're looking at over a thousand years of history and yet the promise remained the same. The word remained the same. I'm coming. And I'm coming to change things. So what does this promise tell us about God? What what does it communicate about who he is and and what we can do with it? We, We read it here and clearly on this side of Bethlehem, on this side of the cross, we can say, okay, he fulfilled that promise. Jesus came. Yay. But what does that mean to us? Remember, it's not just a prediction fulfillment. It's not just, look, God did what he said he would do. It's a promise. It has continuing ramifications. It has continuing implications for us in our walk, in our ministry. I think the first thing that it tells us about God is that his relationship with us is important to him. It's important to him. Obviously, we we look at these texts and we, we think of them as believers and we say, man, that's my hope. That that's 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 great. That's God's grace, and, and I can experience that. But It's important to him. Why? He repeats it over and over and over again in different circumstances. He keeps coming back and he keeps saying, I'm coming. I'm here for you. I'm in relationship with you. I desire relationship with you. We tend to repeat those things that are important to us. Why do we continually tell our spouses or family members or loved ones, I love you. Why do we say that? Is once not good enough? No, once is not good enough. It's important to you. It's It communicates who you are. It communicates your heart. It communicates the connection. It communicates 
so many deep and wonderful things. And so what? You say it over and over and over again. The same phrase, the same three words. But each time they matter. Each time they're significant. Each time they communicate some truth about your connection with that person. So why would God continually, constantly come back to Israel and say, I'm sending a king. I'm sending a king. I'm sending a king. Because it's important. It's important to him. It communicates his commitment to us. It communicates his desire for us. It communicates the desire that, that we find our wholeness. Remember in the book of Judges that we looked at, you had that repeated refrain, Israel had no king, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. Now, yes, that has ramifications going into Samuel and the call of Saul and David and all that. What? It has a bigger picture as well. That a people without a king, a godly king, a sacred king, God himself as king, will do whatever they want and will destroy themselves, will ruin themselves. We need a king. And God continues to reflect that, communicate that, his desire for a relationship. Second thing the promises tell us about God is that God works within history, but is not constrained by it. He's not just a God who determines the future then lets it unfold. Okay, the, the deist of the past and, and even of the present who picture God as this watchmaker who creates this watch and winds it up and then lets it run. And that's how they view creation. Disconnected now from, from creation. Disconnected from involvement in it. That's not the God of the Bible. Our God created all that is. Our God has planned out what will happen. But our God is what? He's still very much involved. He's still very much a part of your life, your history, your a series of events. God's there. And I know sometimes it, it's, it's hard to see. Sometimes it, it's hard to understand. Why are things going the way they're going? Why, why are things happening the way they're happening? And sometimes we don't have clarity. But as I've, I've communicated before, one of my favorite uh, quotes from Spurgeon. When you can't trust, or when you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. When you don't know where things are going, know him regardless. To see him continually pouring out his heart, continually pouring out his, his desires and his commitment to Israel over thousands of years of history is to what? Is to see that in your 70, 80, 90 years of life. He's going to pour out himself to you as well. He's going to communicate to you as well. He's going to want to, you to see his authority and his position and his place in your life. He's going to want you to connect with him. He's going to want you to, to, to move beyond your, your errors and your sins and your mistakes and to, and to see his grace and his love and his deliverance, to see the hope that he provides. Along with that comes the, the third thing I think these promises tell us is that while we might forget his promises, he never does. 
Israel forgot over and over and over again. They forgot. They forgot his grace. They forgot his love. They forgot his, his promise of connection and commitment. But God never forgot. God never let go. God had made a promise. And he was going to stand beside that. He was going to hold on to that. He was going to be with Israel, even to the point of what? Sending his own son. Leaving the glory of heaven to dwell among us. Even to the point of death on a cross, a cursed death. Just to keep his promise. Just to communicate his deep desire for us. One of some of my favorite memories of my kids, they still resonate in my mind is when I would say something and they would look up and they would say with that smile, do you promise? Because my kids knew unless it was physically impossible, if I promised it was going to happen. And to see that confidence and that connection something that I'll value forever. And that's what God wants us to see in his promise. That's what God wants us to be expressing in our response. Yes, he promises. And yes, he has fulfilled those promises and continues to fulfill those promises. But guess what? The last truth of the promise is that God's promises change our status. They changed the very nature of who we are. The passage I read from Micah, chapter 5, is one of those passages that I think really reveals the truth of God's transformative work. Because there in, in Micah, chapter 5, it says what? You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, you're so insignificant as a city. You're so small that you don't even get status in our clan meetings. When our tribe comes together and the various clans gather together for our tribal meetings, Micah says, Bethlehem doesn't even get a, a, a clan leader to stand in front of them. That's how small and insignificant you are. That's what that's what Micah says there. And then he goes on to say, But from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Jerusalem and Israel. And Micah's saying what? He's saying, Jerusalem, they're big and they're magnificent and they're great and they're, they're powerful and you know they, they have all this representation. They have the king and all this other stuff. But they're what? They're all, they've also rejected God's ways and God's will. So God's going to do something special. He's going to go to this small and consequential place, the place where David was born. He's going to start over. He's going to start over. But notice how Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, quotes Micah. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you comes a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. You notice the shift there? Micah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're too little to be considered. Matthew, you are by no means the least. What happened? Jesus happened. Jesus happened. Jesus' birth has transformed Bethlehem's status. Jesus' coming has transformed their place, their role, not just in the history of Israel, but in the history of humanity. No longer are they this small, inconsequential little hovel for shepherds. Now they are the center of God's work in humanity. All of the world turns to Bethlehem around Christmas. Why? Because Jesus was born there. The promise was fulfilled there. When you see that transformative work of the city, you see the value of the promise to you as well. There is, according to First Peter, great joy at seeing the outcome of these prophecies. Peter highlights the, the excitement we feel that in the past they saw darkly, dimly, through a fog. We get to see it played out in fullness. There's joy there. But understand this, God's, God's promises are not for decoration. They're not for adornment. They are for relationship. They are not just to show off what he's capable of. They're not just to say, well, look, God predicted something 2,000 years before it happened. Of course he did. He's God. He's timeless. They're for relationship. And God calls out to you today, and he says, what? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's a promise. He says, go and make disciples. All authority has been given to me. I give it to you. And remember, I'm what? I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. That's a promise. He says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise. And each one of those promises, just like the promise of the coming king that plays out through Old Testament, each one of those promises is embedded the idea of relationship. And it's embedded, embedded in it is the idea of transformation. God wants a relationship with you. Are you experiencing that? Are you enjoying that? Are you encountering that? Is that a part of your life, of your expression, of your outlook? I have a relationship with the creator of this universe. Why? Not because of anything I've done, but because he's been faithful to his promises. Because he has engaged this world. He has engaged my world. And he saw me lost and hopeless. And he stepped in and he said, come 
and experience the salvation I'm offering. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know, I want you to understand, God's saying that very thing to you. Come and experience the salvation, the deliverance, the hope, the, the, the future that I'm offering. And it's not a, it's not a future of, of dimness or, or, or doubt or fear. It's what? It's a future of abundance. He's offering it to you if you'll but surrender. Those of you who are believers, those of you who have responded to that, you're saying, I don't know that I'm experiencing that abundant life. Let me just say, God has not forgotten his promises. He is faithful to those promises. And He is there with you in the midst of your life, in the midst of your experience, in the midst of your pain. He has not abandoned you. He will not abandon you. And He will grant you deliverance from the depression, from the fear, from the, the doubts that you're experiencing. Just do what you did before. Surrender. And let Him do what only He can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for each person here. God, I pray that if there's anyone here, firstly, who does not have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts even now. Reveal to them your will, your desire, your promise of relationship. Draw them in your power and help them to be responsive. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as well. I pray that those that are struggling, that are hurting, whatever the cause may be, whatever the circumstances may be behind it, Lord, we know that you are faithful and that you have promised to deliver us and to be with us. And we pray, Lord, that that would be manifested, that would be expressed here today in a very real way. God, help us to be obedient to whatever it is you're calling us to, to whatever you would desire to see us surrender to. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.